Welcome to the Active for Life podcast. My name is Richard Monette. I'm the Managing Director at Active for Life, and I'll be your host today. You know, in a world where children are less likely to be physically active, our purpose at Active for Life is to help Canadian parents raise physically literate children. There are lots of ways that kids can develop physical literacy, and the one that comes to mind quite often is organized sports. And today, we're talking about a critical topic, keeping kids and everyone involved in sport safe from harassment, abuse, discrimination, and bullying. My guest is Marie-Claude Asselin, the Chief Executive Officer of the Sport Dispute Resolution Center of Canada. Marie-Claude brings not only her professional experience in physical activity sciences, sociology, and conflict management, but also 40 years of experience in the sports system as an athlete, coach, official, administrator, and volunteer. Marie-Claude, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much, uh, Richard, for inviting me for this podcast. We're really looking uh, forward to speaking about this topic. This is a topic that's really close to us at Active for Life. Uh, The first question is that, Marie-Claude, you led the creation of the Canadian Sport Alpine. What is the helpline, and, and how has it come to be? Well, I, I can I can go back a long time, but uh, I'll, I'll backtrack to June 2018 because that was a key moment uh, in all this uh, B210 and the Coaching Association of Canada and the Canadian Centre for Child Protection, along with the Sport Dispute Resolution Centre of Canada. We stood by four very courageous women who decided to go public to tell their stories of being sexually abused by their ski coaches, their ski coach decades ago. Their stories were absolutely compelling and it got the entire country mobilized to take action. So it it was a catalytic event. Uh, It drove the government of Quebec uh, within a few days uh, to pass a motion, uh, the government of Canada uh, also to commit to making our sports system safer. So it it was uh, long awaited uh, this moment and I think uh, it opened eyes to uh, not only the people in the sports system but the public as well. So uh, when Kirsty Duncan, uh, Minister of Sport, made an announcement a few weeks later. She declared that all federally funded sport organizations had to make provisions for access to an independent third party to address harassment and abuse cases. And at the Sport Dispute Resolution Center of Canada, I will refer to us as the SDRCC, um, as a dispute resolution center, we knew right away that we had to do more than just comply because we are a funded organization, so we're subject to those rules. But we also had to help others comply. So um, our first um, reaction to this was to create uh, the investigation unit. We wanted to offer the sport community easy access to qualified investigators. So we went off to recruit lawyers and HR professionals and retired police officers who were willing to investigate allegations of harassment and abuse in sport. And uh, we enrolled them for pre-negotiated rates and remuneration conditions, and we provided them with an orientation so that they would better understand the context of federated sports and and adapt their investigation practice to to that reality. When we conceptualized that investigation unit, we envisioned a toll-free line that people could call to report issues and incidents 
that could, if if those allegations met a certain threshold, trigger an investigation. But at the time of launching the investigation unit last fall, we had no government funding for the programs, and we were fortunate that the Canadian Olympic Committee donated some funds to conduct the orientation session for the investigators, um, but that was all. Um, so we decided um, at that time that the program was going simply to be a pool of qualified investigators that funds, funded sport organizations could just tap into as needed. Um, however, and, and we were very conscious of that, this meant that victims and witnesses would still need to complain directly to their respective sport organizations, something we knew had not worked well for them in the past. So um, first of all, what we knew is that victims typically do not report abuse, and that's for many reasons. Um, what I've learned from the Canadian Center for Child Protection, and, and by the way, I want to invite everyone listening to this to visit its website for all the amazing resources it offers, it offers to, present, uh, to prevent child sexual abuse. Um, but I learned from that website and from people working there that victims do not disclose because aggressors had groomed them into feeling complicit, shameful, and responsible for what happened to them. So the aggressors also had groomed not only their victims, but they had groomed all others around who could have prevented this from happening. Parents, other coaches, and club directors were, without even knowing it, complicit to, to these, um, these actions. So they were fooled into believing that these adults were God sent to take care of these kids and taking them under their wings and helping them become better in their sport, spending time with them and acting almost as extended family. As a result of this, when victims decided to speak up, they were not believed. People would say to them, that is impossible. This person would never do such a thing. Um, so as I mentioned first, uh, very few victims actually disclosed. And second, when we heard this loud and clear from those athletes who after many years after being abused finally found the courage to speak up and file complaints that when they tried to disclose the abuse, they faced disbelief, their concerns were brushed off, they were told by their federations to keep quiet, adding insult to the injury. So um, I want to go back again. I know your question was very short. My answer is very long. When the Sport Dispute Resolution Center was created in 2004, it was as a result of a working group concluding that participants in the sports system were being harassed, disciplined, and denied opportunities without a recourse to a hearing or an appeal. So had these harassment and abuse issues followed the proper pathway of complaints, investigations, disciplinary hearings, appeals, the SDRCC would have been seized of a lot more cases. And um, the victims have explained to us now why these matters never made it to the SDRCC, because the complaints were buried by people in conflict of interest, they were dismissed without an investigation, they were ignored uh, 
and sometimes just because the people who receive them just didn't know what to do with them. So don't get me wrong here. I just want to say there are some sport organizations that have a strong safe sport program and have done a really good job making sure these complaints were addressed by independent professionals. But the reality is that very few sport organizations have the human and financial resources to handle these very complex and sensitive legal and sometimes criminal matters. So uh, to come back to the helpline, Minister Duncan was pleased with our idea of the investigation unit, but she quickly recognized that this was not enough, and she agreed with us that victims and witnesses needed to have access to an anonymous and confidential service to get some help with their situation. So this is when the federal government asked us to create the Canadian Sport Helpline and provided us with funding to enhance the investigation unit. So both programs are pilot projects, and they're going to run until March 2020, and they will be evaluated early in the new year to determine whether they will continue, and if so, and I'm confident they will, but uh, they may change in the form of delivery or under what conditions they are offered. So this is, this is what, where the helpline came from, and, and we're very pleased that, that it's out there now and that people are using it. I think the idea is, is really um, to help facilitate, provide easy access, to make it really simpler for victims and witnesses to, to really report uh, cases of abuse in this situation, isn't it? It, it is because they're, um, they're calling people who are not going to judge them, uh, people who are going to uh, maintain the anonymity and confidentiality of what they are disclosing. And, uh, and sometimes that's all they need to know, that, uh, that they will have someone who's going to listen. Listen with the intent of really helping them. Yes, so how does the helpline work? What happens when someone calls in either a victim or a witness? So people can contact the helpline via phone, email, or text. So our service is available from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern time. And it mean, that means that it covers core business hours from coast to coast in Canada. If you call the helpline uh, by phone, first you'll have to choose the preferred official language um, that you want to address the operator, and you will be directed to an online operator. So if the operator is busy with another client, you can leave a message uh, for an operator to call you back, or you simply can decide to call back later. Um, if you do contact the service by email or by text, you will receive a written response as soon as the operator is available to answer you. So um, the operators are professionals and they're trained in psychology and counseling and in sport. They're, in fact, they're recruited and appointed by the Canadian Centre for Mental Health and Sport. Um, they actually live in different regions of Canada and they take shifts from wherever they are located and uh, all they need is a phone and, and access to the internet to, to work. So um, it's, uh, it's very easy um, for them to, uh, to participate and help out. Um, we have a helpline dashboard uh, that was created by our technology uh, partner, Hypernet, and it's a double-blind interface that allows the operator to receive calls and call back a client without ever knowing his or her phone number, and the operator can use his own um, his or her uh, own phone number to call the client back, but the client will never see the personal number of the operator calling back. So it's a pretty sophisticated uh, program, and we're very pleased with it. 
Um, if the client contacts the service by email, the operator will see the body of the email message and will be able to respond to it, with it without ever knowing the email address of the client. So it is completely anonymous and the operator will never know the identity of the person contacting the service unless the client discloses that information in the content of its communications. Um, the helpline is the foremost First and foremost, a place where victims and witnesses alike can call or email and and they can speak to a completely neutral individual about their concerns, things they have experienced or have seen others go through. It's a listening service. It provides an opportunity for many to speak for the first time about a concern that they have, but they felt silly or uncomfortable expressing in front of other people that they know or people who know the person who has an improper conduct. So we've received some very uh, touching testimonials from helpline clients, and um, when they call our service, um, they told us and they wrote to us um, that they felt it was the first time someone listened to what they had to say without judging, uh, without dismissing what they were feeling. Um, some others have even confirmed that thanks to the assistance providing by the, provided by the helpline operators, they found the strength and the proper pathway to file a formal complaint. Um, so these are very powerful examples of the importance of the helpline that it empowers victims to come forward. I think the key, uh, the key concept here, the one that really captures my attention is it empowers the victim uh, to, to speak up and actually not be caught in, in, in such horrible situations and, and to know that they're, they're doing so in a totally anonymous and secure way. I think that that is very liberating um, for the victims. Can I can I add something to that? I didn't want you to go into the third question yet. <laughs> yeah, go for it. Thank you. Uh, what is also encouraging in the helpline statistics so far is that most callers are in fact witnesses, not necessarily victims. So. Uh, these these witnesses uh, have observed suspicious behaviors and they're calling out of concern for a real or potential victim. So we know, and not just from sexual abuse cases in sport, but in all other child-serving organizations, that a very small percentage of victims come forward on their own. So I view this as a huge benefit of the helpline, that it also allows others to come forward on behalf of victims to try to stop the abuse. Um, the, the operators will, will refer to existing resources to take the next steps, if, if there are any, um, where they can get help or initiate a formal complaint. So um, if I look at the profile um, and our statistics with just about six months into the program, um, I can paint it with uh, some broad stroke um, broad brushstrokes, um, none of the clients have self-identified as being minors, so there are adults concerned um, who are calling, or some of them um, are adult now, but they, they may have been uh, subject to inappropriate behavior in the past when they were minors. Um, parents are the most frequent callers, and then, and then we have athletes in, in second. Um, as I mentioned before, it's most often a witness bringing up a concern rather than, than the victim directly. Um, so um, more than half of the issues brought up were occurring at the club level, so that's also... Um, 
I know it's a volume issue too. There's a lot more clubs than national teams in Canada, um, but but that certainly indicates that uh, there are things that can be done at that level. Um, the most common topics or concerns brought up were uh, bullying, abuse of power, and verbal abuse. And, uh, and then we had a large number of general inquiries about process for filing a complaint. Um, so it, it's not all sexual abuse and it's not all the uh, egregious behavior that comes out of this, but it's just the things that are making people feel uncomfortable um, about the sport environment that they, um, that they practice in. So uh, one thing that the helpline is not is a tip line um, that would take the information to another level. So it's not a complaint management services that would turn around and initiate a complaint on behalf of a client. So right now, um, the onus remains on the victim to actually file the complaint, which we know from those victims who came forward that it is a huge barrier for them to overcome. So in the long run, we do hope that the helpline will morph into uh, a form of intake mechanism and that it will be empowered to report to an investigation service on behalf of the client. Um, the information shared with the helpline by the, the helpline operators um, could be fed into uh, current and future investigations that could lead to formal disciplinary process. So I think, I see the helpline as growing into something way more than it is right now. And I think it would meet the needs of the sport community a bit better. But it's still a pilot project um, and, uh, and we're testing the waters and, and we're hopeful that uh, it, will, it will become, it will grow into something better. So uh, as a parent with children and sport, I, I'm, I'm relieved to know that many of the callers are actually witness. It means that people are looking out uh, for each other out there. And that is reassuring. Um, in terms of witness and or victims calling the helpline, uh, you say that you will not, the helpline is not there to 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 actually, uh, you know, make the, an official complaint. Do you... Does anyone calling the helpline, uh, will they receive any help and support on how to actually uh, put forward an official complaint? Well, our operators are equipped with uh, a, a wide array of resources that they can consult and, and make sure that they refer the person to the proper place. So sometimes um, if the person expresses the wish to actually file a complaint, um, but they don't feel that they have the capacity to do it on their own, they may be referred to legal aid or to uh, pro bono lawyers um, to help them do that. So the, the people from the helpline will not do it for them, but they will refer them to the appropriate resources. Thank you. Um, so I'd like to, 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 to go back to the premise that sport and physical activities are really good for kids. Um, so, uh, so what does this mean for parents who have children in sport? What should they do to keep their kids safe? Yeah, one thing I, I want to start with is saying that uh, sport, as all serving, uh, child-serving organizations, 
are vulnerable um, and they are targeted by by predators. So um, it's not sport, uh, it's everywhere kids are that we have to be super cautious um, about the people that we hire to take care of them. Um, so there's a very small minority of coaches who are aggressors. So it, it's not, uh, I don't think sport is a dangerous place to be, but it needs to be delivered in a way that makes it safe for the kids. So um, I think for the parents, um, it's important to um, to be part of their their kids' participation in the sport. Um, I, I will start by saying that, um, first of all, when I said not all coaches are aggressors or a small minority of them are, um, some of them sometimes will make decisions that are less than ideal, but it's unfair to assume that all the coaches are um, have bad intentions. Um, they do have a privileged relationship with their athletes that, that make the athlete very vulnerable. So it, we often hear of abuse that took place between a coach and an athlete, the coach being the aggressor, the athlete, the victim. But um, it, it's, it's present in other um, areas of our lives in the workplace with uh, superiors who are abusing their subordinates or um, people sitting on boards who are abusing employees. So it, it, there's a, a position of power imbalance between the two. It makes the uh, the person um, who is a subordinate vulnerable. So sport is is where there's a close physical proximity and sometimes when teaching skills you often are required to have physical contact with um with the athlete to show them the proper movement so all of these touching must remain appropriate at all times and purposeful um for the sport and and not for the personal needs of the coach um the coaches that are in a position of authority over athletes, um, it puts the coach in a position where this authority could be abused. So if there's always another person present, you know, we're going to talk uh, in a few minutes about the rule of two. I want to talk about it. This is really important. Um, uh, it reduces the risk of a coach abusing um, his position of power. Um, the higher the caliber of practice, the stronger the bond between the coaches and their athletes. So um, it's more intimate. The relationship is uh, sometimes the athlete becomes dependent on the coach's choice for their basic needs, such as hydration, sleep, and recovery. So that creates a situation where the athlete is very dependent on, on the coach. Um, so the vulnerability can be brought on by the fact that um, most female athletes are coached by male coaches. Um, there's not a lot of female coaches in, in the profession. Um, so we, we have to admit that all the abuses have not always been male coaches against female athletes. Um, but in the vast majority of uh, abuse cases, the aggressor was a man. So we do promote um gender diversity uh, in people of position of power in a sports system, um, we think it's, uh, it's a positive change um, to prevent uh, these sorts of abuse from taking place. So parents, um, they, may, they, they have to make informed choices when they select a sport, a club, or a league for their children. And as a primary caregiver for their children, 
parents have a responsibility to ensure that the people they entrust their kids to are qualified to do so. Uh, as a parent of teenagers, I know this because when we love our children, we're careful how we pick a stroller and how we pick a car seat and healthy food and a good daycare service and a good school. We want them to be safe, healthy, and happy. So why wouldn't we would be as diligent in choosing in what sport, in what club, or in what league they will play? So um, there are say, certain safeguards that parents need to make sure are in place in the sport programs in which they want to enroll their kids. And I'm going to quote Alison Forsythe. She was a victim who uh, turned uh, advocate for safe support. Um, it's not enough to ask what equipment your child needs to play a sport. You also have to ask who are the coaches caring for the kids? What credentials or training do they have? Are they certified? Um, is there a code of conduct in the club or the league? How will, it, how will it protect their child and where to go to file a complaint if, if you see something inappropriate? Is there a screening mechanism in the hiring process for the employees? And not just the coaches, because we often talk about the coaches. What about the people working in the venue that the club or the league rents? So... Again, coming back to uh, the ratio of female to male coaches, you can ask that question also. Um, and then has the sport organization endorsed the responsible coaching movement as it adopted the rule of two? It's been redefined by Swimming Canada, by the way, as, as open and an observable environment. And I think it's a great way to put it because the rule of two in a responsible coaching movement requires that at any given time, um, a coach interacting with an athlete um, um, would have to be accompanied by another certified coach, um, which from a resource standpoint is really difficult for uh, for clubs and smaller sport organizations to um, <clears throat> to live up to. The open and observer, observable environment policy um, makes it mandatory that when you're having a one-on-one -on -one conversation with an athlete that you do so in an open and observable environment. So if you do this on a trip during a competition, you do it in the lobby of the hotel, not in the athlete's bedroom. And so it's just if you do, if you have to have a, a conversation with a child at the sport venue, you don't do it in the change room. You do it in a corner where people can't hear what you're saying, but they can see you interacting with the, with the child. So it's so important that parents don't use sport as a daycare. Like we see so many parents drop their kids at the venue. They go do groceries and other errands, and then they come back to pick them up. And they have they're completely disengaged from the, their kids' sport participation. They have no opportunity to observe the environment, the, the behavior of the coaches, of the volunteers, and sometimes even of the other parents. So it, it is, I think, problematic to um, to just say, "I'll, you know, sounds like a nice sport, or I hope, you know, I want my kids to play hockey, I'm going to sign them up. But you have to make sure that you know in what environment you're putting them in. Yeah, I um, when when our our kids were younger, um, one team that my son was part of, the parents worked together on this. They they actually talked to each other, saying, "Okay, well, I can't be there on Saturday. Will you be there?" And there was always someone around uh, that way, it, and it, it just took a bit of communication to make sure that there was always someone to to make sure things were going uh, were okay, and uh, you know that nothing inappropriate was happening. 
Yes, and some of the the, the parents, I think, what the, sometimes they just don't know what to look for. So, how, how do you spot <laughs> someone who has bad intentions? You can't. Uh, first of all, because if that person is determined to abuse kids, they will have groomed you into thinking that. Um, they're the best thing that could have ever happened to their kids. So um, it, grooming, and I want to talk a little bit about grooming because it's a process that's used by individuals to prepare a child or the significant adults around the child to abuse the child. So they manipulate the environment, they manipulate the people to create opportunities to be alone with their victims, and they always have all the good excuses to legitimize their behavior. So um, to... To build the trust of the child, they were um, they would normalize sexual behavior. Like um, they will desensitize the kids to sexual content, like making sexual jokes or comment. They will uh, have inappropriate touching that will they will call accidental. They will show them pornography and. Uh, they will wrestle, tickle, massage, and hug him uh, when it, it's not, uh, you know, it's not for the kids' needs. So it's for their own needs because they like to touch kids. So you have to recognize when something is being done to meet the needs of the kid versus the need of the adult interacting with them. Uh, some of them will, um, they will take on uh unapproved photos of their their kids when they're in the water when they're changing or you know when they're sweating um, and they will create intimacy with these um, by using social media so if, if coaches interact uh, in so by social media with their um, with the athletes that they coach um, the parents should always be um, on these communications. So it's done as a group. It's not done individually. Um, you want to be able to know um, what the coach is telling your kid on social media. Um, they will look for uh, creating intimacy by uh, finding excuses to, um, to to spend time with the child outside of the sport system. Um, they will make them feel special. They will, you know, give uh, gifts and, and make favors to them. And then they will create complicity um, by serving alcohol to minors. Um, they have something that uh, the child wants. They will socially isolate a child um, by saying bad things about other kids on the team to them so that the kid will feel special. So all the while, they're going to groom the parents and the other adults around, and they're going to give them a sense of comfort that the individual is responsible and caring for the child, but they will appear outstanding, friendly, and caring, and they will fool adults into thinking that they're amazing. So it's really, really hard uh, to screen them out because they seem to be a good moral character and have uh, intact personalities and, and live good lives, but... Um, you have to be um, watchful for uh, an adult who is not a member of your family, I have to say, uh, to seem overly, and it could be a member of a family, the abuser, by the way, I'm not saying this, um, but uh, you have to be careful if you have, if there's an adult who seems overly interested in a child um, that finds uh, excuses to find time alone with the child on a regular basis that gives special privileges or gift 
um, they would spend time with the child outside of the sport context. Um, and uh, they will also breach uh, policies, but they will also have an excuse for that, that they're, oh, you know, the child did not have a ride, so I gave them a ride home or invited them to their, uh, invited them to my house because um, it was too far to drive them back to their home. Um, so they, they create these opportunities and they always have a good excuse for it. So um, the hotspots are uh, locker rooms, showers, changing areas, away tournaments when people are staying in hotels, um, extended stays uh, outside of the home, uh, in transportation, um, and then at uh, team social events, parties where um, there could be alcohol consumption, even though it's not uh, legally allowed. So you have to be part of your child's sport life. You have to insist at all times on the open and observable, observable environment um, in, in the sport arena and around it. So the harsh reality is that the sport system has not been very good so far in protecting its participants from predators because the sex offenders, they look for opportunities to access a victim. And if they find a sport organization that does not pay attention to these signs and symptoms and behavior, um, and they don't have a rule, a code of conduct that prohibits these, these behavior, then the sex offenders will find the breach and they will take advantage of it. So um, if you see any of these behaviors, you flag them, but you also make sure that the sport organizations you you enroll your kids with have it um, properly laid out that um, these things are not appropriate. Yeah, it really comes down to a, a, a few principles. It's ensuring that the organization is aware that it's got a, a serious and well-designed uh, set of procedures and guidelines. And then it's also as parents and coaches and so on to, to keep an eye out and make sure that if there is something that seems weird, <laughs> seems not right, to actually, uh, you know, bring it forward, really. Absolutely. So if you're a parent, a coach, a volunteer, an athlete, or a game official and a referee, you can access the helpline. And when you do access the helpline, you'll receive advice, guidance, resources from qualified professionals. So, Matt Claude, can you share with us uh, if I'm one of those people that need to access the helpline, how to do so? If you want to call or text, uh, the number is one eight 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 three sport So it's one eight 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 three seven seven six seven eight. Um, if you want to contact the uh, system uh, using email, you can do so at info at abuse hyphen free hyphen sport dot ca so it's abuse free sport dot ca great and uh if if i'm one of those parents who know about the helpline how can i uh help promote uh, the fact that this tool is there and and accessible by everyone 
Well, we have created some promotional material uh, about uh, two, three months ago, um, and we're going to be going into Blitz in the fall to uh, distribute more of those, but uh, they are a poster, uh, and we have them in English and in French, of course, and business cards. So uh, the promotional materials are available on the website abuse-free-sport.ca, and uh, the poster is actually 11 by 17, so it's a format that you can print uh, at any corner shop, and uh, so it's really easy for people to print their own, and the business cards are the same thing. They're ready to print a media file for uh, for printers, so you can print as many as you need, uh, distribute them to your athletes, your coaches, and your members at the at annual meetings or other opportunities. Awesome. Well, this is a great uh, initiative, Marie-Claude. Uh, it's been uh, way too long uh, until we started as a system to do something to really help protect everyone involved in sport. So I'd like to thank you very much. And uh, I'm going to wish you good luck and lots of success going forward with this, uh, this project. Thank you, Marie-Claude. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Active for Life podcast. Be sure to visit activeforlife.com for articles, activities, and resources to help children stay active. And be sure to check out our other podcasts as we continue our conversation with the brightest minds in the world of physical literacy. Thank you for listening.